welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by our lead pastor, Dave Ferguson, and author, Daniel Hill, as we begin a brand new series, Conversations. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Welcome to Conversations. This summer at Community, we're going to spend three weekends exploring some tough topics. Racism, mass incarceration, and mental health. Today, you'll get a chance to hear from one of the foremost thought leaders on a topic that can be polarizing in our current culture. Our goal with today's big idea is to model how to have a conversation about this topic by hearing our expert story and looking to the Bible as our truth source. It's our hope that this conversation will inspire all of us to seek to understand the many facets of this tough topic so we can draw closer to God and seek ways to help others find their way back to Him. So with that in mind, let's begin the conversation. Daniel Hill is the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church, a vibrant multi-ethnic church in Chicago. Planted in 2003, River City longs to see increased spiritual renewal as well as social and economic justice in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago. Daniel is an active participant in addressing and confronting racial and systemic injustices in the city. He's the author of White Awake, a book that takes an honest look at what it means to be white while empowering every one of us to be agents of reconciliation in our increasingly diverse and divided world. Daniel, thanks for being with us. Dave, it's an honor to be with you guys. Uh, This is the first of three in our conversation series. We're dealing with some tough topics. And we're starting today with the topic of race and racism. And... Community Christian Church, we have 10 locations uh, across the Chicagoland area, in the suburbs, two in the city, um, mostly white, um, although there's some diversity around at different locations. Um, but this is a topic, I think, both for me personally, and I think our leadership, that we're trying to really lean into. We feel like um, God's pulling us into a greater understanding of kind of how we need to respond to these kind of topics, and we're kind of in a learning posture, and that's honestly why it's really great to have you here. Um, now, we, I think we have to ask the obvious question. Why do you have two white guys talking about race and racism? Yeah. And uh, let me, let me kind of give the alibi here. One is you lead uh, River City Church, which is, it is an intentionally uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural church, terrific church there in Humboldt Park. And also you're the author of White Awake, which um, is a book a lot of us have read and our staff has really enjoyed. And it also kind of chronicles your journey mm-hmm. along the way, which you've been on this longer than I have. And you, at the beginning, you talk about some of the kind of mistakes or misguided efforts that you had. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about those? Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. I know your community pretty well. I've been in multiple locations and known you for a long time. So thank you for the work you guys are doing. And um, I appreciate just the willingness to dive into these conversations. It can um, oftentimes summon a lot of kind of big emotions or big fears. And so um, I appreciate the willingness to do this. And we can say, I think... It might help even with this conversation for preparing ourselves. Like the goal of this is not to say who's racist and who's not, right? The goal of this is not even to point a finger and say we all need to be doing better. I, I don't think that's really what we're trying to accomplish with our time. I don't think we're trying to say location by location are we diverse enough. I think what we're trying to say is there, there's something pretty evil that's out there. Um, and it's created a lot of havoc. And it's really antithetical to the heart of God. And as people, individuals who follow Jesus, as communities who follow Jesus, we're trying to understand what that thing is, see it more clearly, understand what it means as a Christian to respond to that. And so 
Um, that's what I'm hoping for for our conversation today, that we'll be able to have a little clearer sense of that evil that's out there and how we can organize ourselves and being able to understand it better. Yeah, I hope so too. Now, start with, start with your journey. I kind of was up against race a lot growing up, but didn't really think about it much, didn't interact with it much. Where'd you grow up? I'm in the Chicago suburbs, okay. so we had what I think were a lot of white Christians are on this. Like, we would have been quick to renounce racism of any kind, would have said that's certainly a bad thing, but we didn't interact with it any more than that. It was much more kind of like a colorblind type of ideology, you know, that kind of everybody's equal, everybody's the same, everybody needs God. It actually maybe confuses things or makes things worse to talk about things like race and culture. It was actually at a wedding where I first came head to head with this. And it was a white woman and a man of Indian descent. And he said, um, hey, Dan, you're going to get a deep dive into Indian culture, uh, especially at the uh, rehearsal dinner. And so I was very excited about that. And it was indeed the food, the songs, the music, you know, everything. It was just a really kind of amazing experience for me. And so I came up to him afterwards. And I meant this as a compliment. And I said, hey, this was an amazing night. And uh, I'm so jealous. You just have so much culture. I'm so jealous that you have a culture. And I just kind of lamented. I said, I wish I had a culture too, you know, and so that's one of the things I'm jealous for you. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, but when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, it almost always wins. One of the best gifts you could give to me would be to learn about your culture. If I'm being honest, I was very defensive. I was not really in a learning position. So it really did. I mean, it really actually stuck with you. It really did. I like. I mean, and looking back now, I think God, it's, God uses unusual things sometimes, right? So who would have thought that this just kind of random one-off conversation at a wedding rehearsal would be a, such a defining moment? Certainly, I didn't know at the time. But I couldn't get it out of my head. It took me a couple of years, really, of kind of wrestling with that question to like really start going deeper and deeper kind of down the rabbit hole. Well, go ahead and fill in the gaps in your story then, because from somewhere in that unrest, you end up starting a church that was intentionally yeah. multi-ethnic, multicultural. Yeah. Right. My experience is I, both in myself and as I've walked a lot of white folks through this, I think we tend to go through different stages along sure. the way. And so there's kind of this initial stage of kind of defensiveness or just being in shock and awe. Um, sometimes there's a stage of kind of living in denial a little bit, like I don't think these things are real. I was just doing just kind of my regular quiet time. I was in the book of John. I came to Nicodemus in chapter 3, a passage I knew well growing up as a pastor's kid. It, it struck me of how disorienting that conversation must have been, right, that Nicodemus I mean, he really honored Jesus. He didn't come to trap him. He didn't come to, like, make him look foolish. He came. He said, I see that you know God. God is with you. You're an amazing rabbi, an amazing teacher. I think he must have been thinking, essentially, the question was, what more do I need to do? Right? I've spent my whole life trying to be religiously devoted. So you know something I don't know. So tell me, what am I missing? Like, do I need to do less of something, more of something? Like, tell me what I need to do. So we know famously Jesus said, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And we really focus on that born-again part, and I think rightfully so. I base my whole life on that, that we need to be spiritually reborn, to be with God. But it's the see part that really jumped out to me there, that he said, nobody can see the kingdom without being born again. I became fascinated with this notion that rebirth, well, not only does it bring us in a relationship with God, but it starts to change the way we see. And I started to realize when it came to race, I realized the kingdom of God is a far-reaching uh, um, idea. But I, I think of race in some ways like this, like it's a reality that's all around us. Mm -hmm. And the idea of me trying to do something when I didn't even understand the reality that surrounded me was really, at the end of the day, pretty arrogant and naive, you know, to even think I could do something when I didn't even understand what I was up against. And so I felt God kind of use that as a way to say, do you see now, I'm not asking you to do something primarily. I'm asking you to like, you need to be, if you, if you want to follow me into this realm of combating race, you're going to have to be born again in this realm, and you're going to have to see a whole world that you don't currently see. And so that became kind of my mantra from that point forward of, I'm not trying to solve things as much as see things, and now I need to find the people who can help me move from blindness to sight, just as Nicodemus had been invited to go from blindness to sight. One of the things you spent a lot of time on the book that was really, really great, too, is you talked about race. 
And it probably, and, and at least for me, made it, there was a different kind of awareness about the term yeah. and what it means than, than I had been aware of. Yeah. Could, could you go there a little bit? Well, so if we go back to my story where my friend said, yeah. you've got a culture and you're so who wins, right? Um, so this is just this is just honestly one of the real challenges in this conversation is the best thinking about race right now is not really in the church. It's more in academic settings or um, like the people who have really studied race a lot are tend to be outside of the church. And within church circles, race, especially white evangelical spaces, race isn't talked about a lot. When I came outside of Christian circles and tried to understand race, the first thing they would all tell me is race is a social construct. And you'll never understand race if you don't understand it's a social construct. All right. So let's go there. Yeah. What, what does that even mean? Right. Well, so for one, it was offensive right away because I was like, well, that's just antithetical to my Christian belief. I believe race is not a social kind of like the human race is created by God, right? We're all created in God's image. But as I got deeper into it, I realized that's not what they were talking about. They weren't talking about our human beings created by God. They're actually literally talking about like race as a social system, like this terminology we use now of like white. Like for instance, the term white is, hasn't always existed when... European immigrants first came to America, they weren't called white, right? They were Italian and they were Polish and they were British. So this notion of how we talk about race is actually kind of a label that was created um, to organize human beings. And so these terms African-American, Latin or Latinx, Asian-American, white, they're labels. And they were built off of grouping people into categories based on perceived physical differences, which is not necessarily the problem that there was these groupings. But the system of race, this social contract of race, this is where it gets, it's both complicated and simple at the end of the day. What, what, what race is at the end of the day is a way of viewing human beings on a human hierarchy. So race said that there's these racial differences between groups and the differences aren't equal, that the, that the physical characteristics that somebody has is an indicator of the type of potential that they have or the type of intelligence they have, the type of capacity that they have. Now, I'm not saying anybody who's listening to this believes this. I'm just saying this. The system of race said there's a human hierarchy and black is at the bottom, um, white is at the top, which is where the term white supremacy comes from. It's a very charged term, but it's really just describing an ideology that there's a supremeness that goes with white. So it says white is at the top, black is at the bottom, and then everybody else kind of measures in depending on where they fall in that human hierarchy between white and black. I don't know if it was reading the book, because we're sorry you talked. I, I heard this, and I, was, and I still, and maybe it's because I'm so immersed in it, I'm still going like, I don't get it. I don't buy it. And I think the thing that helped me understand is when you begin to unpack three different terms, you talk about race, and then ethnicity, mm-hmm. and then culture, mm-hmm. and as you begin to, and I think as you then began to kind of juxtapose yes. ethnicity and culture versus race, then, yeah. I, then there was a little bit of an aha for me. Yeah. Can you do that for us? Sure, sure. The starting point, I think, every human being is created in the image of God and has intrinsic value, therefore. And so the different things that make us who we are are all part of who God has made us. And so that's what I'd say. Ethnicity is just a reflection of kind of the physical features, the, the, the kind of larger nation group that we're part of. And then culture tends to come from that. Culture tends to be kind of a reflection of like when the ethnic groups kind of live together. Race, race was designed really to create a social order that protected the full humanity of white people and sent messaging around the less than humanity around other people. Really, I think slavery is when you can kind of look to see when the system of race, the social okay, concept so how, of race. How, how old is this concept of so, race? Uh, so, so some would stretch it further back and say you could see the beginnings of it, but it's really the, the version we have of it now is about a 400-year-old system. Give me, a, give, me, give me a story. Give me an example that goes like, oh, that's how this thing emerged. As African people were being brought to America as slaves, it created this moral conundrum right away, right? Any good, even if they're not a Christian, just any good moral person would say, 
something feels wrong about the fact that one class of people owns human beings, another class of people is being owned, right? So a story was kind of necessary to justify this rapid kind of kidnapping and bringing over of African people. And the story that was really solidified during then was that black people are inherently inferior to white people as human beings. And we can look at a lot of places, even in our... We, we can look at it a lot of different ways. So um, you can follow a political thread where that language came up a lot. Um, Jefferson Davis, um, 1865, in the uh, Constitution, when um, taxation was being argued over, black people were called three-fifths human in the Constitution, which gets to this notion. It's what Brian Stevenson calls the nerve of racial difference, which I think is one of the really helpful phrases for understanding the system of race, that we didn't just see differences which is not bad in of itself. I think that's part of being a diverse place is we should acknowledge differences. But we attach human value to those differences. One of the questions he posed when he's in a Christian circle that I think is really uncomfortable, but a really important exercise. Mm-hmm. So with white, when he's in white Christian circles, he'll ask, how is it that white Christians got behind slavery? Yeah. Right? Because I think anybody in today's context would be quick to condemn it, right? Of course, and we'd want to think we weren't we would have been on the right side, but really most white Christians were on the wrong side of it, right? They owned slaves or they were complicit with it. And so he asked, we just have to send this question, how is it that white Christians for the whole, and statistics are clear on this, denominations, Christians, churches, on the whole got behind it. He said the only way that it makes sense is that this story around race was that powerful mm-hmm. that they had come to believe, be brainwashed almost, that black people were three-fifths human. The depth of infection you know, was such that you could read your Bible on quiet time, go to church on Sunday morning, and own slaves. And so that story that allowed for the perception that there was a superiority attached to whiteness and inferiority attached to blackness is what allowed slavery to exist in the first place. So the institution of slavery was toppled in 1865, and that's really important that it was. right? But for the institution to have existed in the first place, there had to be something in the soil. There had to be this kind of infected way of thinking in the soil that said there's a human hierarchy that where you fall on this hierarchy determines your value. And he's like, we knocked down the structure, but we never got the roots. Uh, we never got the, the, the roots of that narrative out of the soil. So he says, if you're a gardener, you know, if, you pull, if you pull weeds but don't get the roots, what's inevitably going to happen, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to come right back up again. So what, what do those weeds look like? Okay, here it is 150 years later. Mm-hmm. What do they look like today? It's very rare. I mean, there's, there's cases, but it's very rare that people like you or I are overtly telling this story. That's not usually where the problem is. It's like as individual actors, we're saying bad things about people. It's, it's um, much more when a school system has this narrative built into it, right, that some people are superior and some are inferior. One of the women who gave her testimony at our church a couple of years ago, I think it really helped clarify for people some of the insidious ways this narrative still lives day to day. So she's an African-American woman. She's a very successful doctor now. She's out at Mayo. But she says, when I look back over the course of my life, I realize third grade was the most important year of my life. Third grade. Third grade. So we start to tell more. And so she talks about the story of her parents, black parents, who weren't very substandard education systems when they grew up. And so they were very determined to live in um, a situation, a community where they could get access to good schooling, which almost is always racially coded still. Good schools are always in white communities. Like you don't ever hear the good schools being in black communities. It's always, there's all these kind of code words that kind of perpetuate that. So interestingly, they lived in Naperville. They moved to Naperville um, to get access to good schools. And so Stephanie, star performer, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. They're at third grade dinner table one night. Mom says, how was school? Stephanie says it was good. Is she had anything notable? She said, actually, a lot of my friends got tested for the advanced placement track um, to get elevated into that next thing. Her mom goes, what did you get tested for? She said, no. Mom says, do you have any idea why? She said, no, I don't know. 
So her mom, you know, real kind of sick feeling happens, right? Like, how did she, she's the top scorer in there. So she goes into the school the next day and nobody's sure why it didn't happen. The principal's not sure why she didn't get tested. The teacher's not sure why. They're apologetic. They retest her. She's the highest scorer in the class. Um, gets brought up to this advanced placement track. Now, in this case, the story ends well in that she got it. But she goes, I look back on that. She goes, if I didn't get into that advanced track, I would have never gone on to the next thing, which then got me ready for college, right? which then got me into a, like a great medical school, which now led me to a doctor. And it all came down to that moment. If my mom doesn't catch that, that I didn't get tested. right? She said, now, do I think that there's some quiet KKK people behind a curtain in a school somewhere saying, no. Uh, and could it have been accidental? Sure, it always could be, right? Statistics overwhelmingly show that expectations for black students are lower than expectations for white students. So she said, my guess is what happened is somebody who would outwardly say they actually really promote cultural diversity right. just missed me, right? She's like, I actually think those are the far more dangerous ways race plays out in our society than a menacing, hateful person that, of course, we all can condemn, right? But that's not the real threat to progress is that there's some hateful people with tiki torches walking around. The real menace is when this storyline around inferiority and superiority gets passed on. It feels like that's a great example. And if it goes back to what you're saying, hey, how do we actually see the yeah. kingdom, which is a uniquely Christian conversation. Yes. And to use your metaphor, how do we start pulling, yes. I don't know, not just pull yes, the weeds, but actually change right. the soil. Right. I mean, it feels like it's, there's some spiritual something. I mean, maybe it goes back to the Nicodemus. There's some born-again stuff, some born-above so. stuff yeah. that has to happen. Right. right. So, right. I mean, you're a pastor. <laughs> pastor us a little bit on this one. So, at the most elemental level, I think the Bible, when you look at this battle between, Je- between good and evil, between Jesus and the devil, if I can use that terminology here, at the most fundamental level, it's truth and lies. Right? Jesus identifies himself with truth consistently. Right, I am the way and the truth and the life, he says in John 14, 6. In John 8, he says, you will know the truth, me, and you'll be set free. And the devil, while it represents different things in the Bible, the most consistent kind of single word would be liar, that the mm-hmm. devil is a liar. Right, um, And I actually think it's important to remember that. Like When we're talking about evil, it can seem so obtuse and esoteric, but evil, the, 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 the currency of evil is lies. That's how evil works, right? I, I think if we go even back to the Garden of Eden, the first time evil shows up, right, when the serpent comes into the garden, the serpent doesn't come to Adam and Eve and say, oh, so that's God's garden? Well, let me show you my garden, and then you pick which garden you think is better. The, 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 the evil doesn't have that kind of power. Right. All evil can do is pollute that which God has created, right? It can distort through lies. I think you see that same storyline in John 8, that same passage where Jesus says, I'm the truth, and the truth will set you free. When he talks about the devil, he says in John 8, 44, he says liar three times. He says... The devil is a liar. Mm-hmm. The devil's native tongue is that of lies. And the devil is the father of lies. Which I think is his way of just showing us, like, that's how evil works. It builds on lies. It creates this kind of cloud of lies. Maybe most frightening part, that's a debate with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. And he says to the Pharisees, right now you belong to your father, the father of lies. And though it's easy to give the Pharisees a hard time because they miss Jesus, at the end of the day... They're way more religiously devoted than most of us will be, right? I mean, their whole life was built on knowing the Hebrew scriptures and then adding even additional rules on. So it's a little bit of a frightening thought that you can actually intellectually have the knowledge of the Bible in you and still be complicit with these kind of, with these lies. Race, if we go back to this, you know, who God has made us to be, like when we're talking about churches that are diverse, I think we're talking about ethnicity and culture. We want to have churches that become foretaste of heaven, right? Of mm-hmm. Revelation 7-9 that creates spaces where every tongue, every tribe, every person is welcome and received and loved as full functioning human beings, right? Because they're creating the image of God. What race does is it pollutes that. It says race 
race says there are these different groups that their value is based on where they fall on the human hierarchy. And it's built on this lie that all human beings are not equal. And if we we're going to really boil it down, that is the affront of race. It is not, while it has a million social implications, it is a spiritual battle at the end of the day. God says, all human beings are created in my image and therefore have inherent value. Race says, no, that's not true. Where somebody falls on the racial hierarchy is where their human value comes from. And so at its core, you have just an idolatrous battle between God, who says all people are valuable, and race, which says, no, they're not all valuable. There's superiority and there's inferiority. As a church... Yeah. Um, we want to see the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I think as a church, we also, if there are lies, we want those exposed. Yeah. Give, give us um, kind of as a challenge here at the end. Here's some real practical things. Here, here's a challenge that I have maybe for you as a church or us as individuals. I think it sounds almost like a no-duh to say truth and lies and then move on to the rest of the stuff. My experience up and down the country is that the lie goes so deep that it's still hard for white Christians to talk about. To kind of name the fact that there's a system of race that attaches human value, um, that is actually a pretty upsetting idea to the typical white Christian. And it requires kind of a lot of gumption to even be able to create space for that kind of a conversation. And so if you guys are able to have this conversation and there's buy-in for the most part, like that makes sense. There's a lie. What should we do about it? That's an important conversation, but I would say that's an enormous step if you can actually get there. If there can be common buy-in to say race is built on a lie and that's contrary to what God has intended, and we want to organize ourselves around telling the truth and exposing a lie. I, I, I'm not being flippant. Say I think you would be in a very small minority of white churches who can comfortably stand in that space and say that we have a conviction around that. We have a conviction to say truth and lies matter and race is built around a set of lies. And so um, both at an individual level and a corporate level, I would say even something as fundamental as acknowledging truth and lies is a step beyond where most of us can go. And so I think that would be a pretty significant one if that's where the church can move. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Hey, would you do us a uh, favor? Would you just would you close with a, yeah. with a prayer? And just, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. This is a spiritual battle. And if you'd pray uh, for us in that regard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, dear God, um, the one who has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus and the Jesus who says... Uh, repent, align with my kingdom. Uh, we, we thank you for the good news that with your kingdom comes you and comes the unspeakable honor of being able to say we are children of the king and that we are um, just so deeply valued, so deeply cherished, so deeply loved as children of the king, which is an unreal honor that that is. And so we celebrate that. We we we. Acknowledge that as the bedrock for all these conversations. And then from there, we take seriously that there's also repentance that's necessary to align with your kingdom. There's a rethinking. There's a breaking free from patterns of this world and a transformation of our minds that must happen to be full participants in your kingdom. And so that touches many arenas of life. But in this, we all around us, we see racial division. We see it in society. But we see the American church. The American church is still ripped right down the middle along racial lines. So something's happening. And a lot of us don't understand what it is. And so I pray we repent, not of bad deeds in this case, but of, of a thinking that maybe still needs to be liberated from the ways, the conforming ways of this world and be transformed by the renewing of our minds through you. So help us to see, to see who we are in you. Help us to see who our neighbor is in you. 
help us to see the ways that this lie creates destruction and communicates a message that's completely contrary to your heart about the humanity and the value of all people. And I pray that you would help us to see and that with that new scene, we'd see you better and see your kingdom. So thank you for this wonderful community. Thank you for the good work you've done here. Uh, Many prayers on the journey as we continue to move from blindness to sight, seeing you and your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.